This morning, before we dive back into Romans, we'll take one last look at the ways that the incarnation of Jesus is undoing our ruin in Eden. We'll read again from two passages. This morning we'll start in Genesis 3, as has been our custom, and then we'll move to the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. And on this first Sunday after Christmas, and the week that follows, many Christians in many churches celebrate Epiphany. It's a holiday dedicated to Jesus' shining forth, or making Himself known, manifesting Himself to the Magi who came to see Him in Bethlehem. And we've discussed this before, but I thought before we got started, it might be worth revisiting now. We don't follow the liturgical calendar at New St. Peter's, not because we think the calendar is sinful or inherently idolatrous. We don't. We don't think that, but we don't think it would be terrible, terribly helpful for us, knowing our church and knowing our culture, and especially given the recent trend in evangelicalism to grab anything and everything liturgical for the sake of recovering the past. We actually think there are many times that things like this would be distracting. They'd probably distract us from Jesus and His gospel more than they would point us to Him. So with that disclaimer, with all of that said, I'm not pushing for the liturgical calendar this morning, but I'm going to preach an Epiphany sermon. I think it's very fitting for us to move towards the life of Jesus as we wrap up this short series. Throughout December, we've been looking at Eden Undone, and we've done it through the Nativity. We've seen Jesus' incarnation and the Annunciation to Mary, the good news of His birth, and birth narratives, and angels dealing with Joseph, and shepherds coming near. And this morning, Luke will move us away from the Nativity to see the incarnation in the life of Jesus, even in the very early life of Jesus, fighting to undo all that Eden ruined in us. So we won't read the most traditional epiphany text this morning with the Magi and the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, not just because I don't know what frankincense is. But we'll read a different text and we'll see that Jesus and His goodness shine just as brightly here in the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. Little Christians, as we read through our two passages this morning... I want you to listen for hiding. I want you to see if you can tell who hides and why they hide. And then I want you to listen for something else. I want you to listen and see if you can hear what Jesus does instead of hiding. And what does He give you instead of more hiding? This is the good news of Jesus, our public Savior, in both Testaments. Genesis 3, 6 through 10. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And both of their eyes were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And they hid among the trees of the garden. But the Lord, God, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
now from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 20 through 35. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And so they brought him to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have repaired in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Lord Jesus, we have spent a month and a half hurried and busied and at our wit's end in the name of celebrating your incarnation. And now that the frantic pace has slowed and the gifts have been unwrapped and we've sent family members out of our homes, give us the peace that you came to bring us. Your salvation is no secret thing. But all too often we confess that we treat it like something anecdotal and unseen. Rather than what it is, your pervasive, all-conquering, all-redeeming grace. Your good news really does set captives free. It really does give sight to the blind and cause the lame to leap for joy. So forgive us for treating it casually and thinking of it occasionally and enjoying it too little. We cannot begin to comprehend your incarnation and what it means for you, the eternal Son, to become flesh with us. We can't imagine what it is for the creator and sustainer of the cosmos to dirty his feet on our roads and wet his clothes with the sweat of our burdens. It is beyond us to consider what it means for the author of life to accept our death and swallow it whole and come out victorious on the other end for us. But while these things are past our understanding, they are not out of reach for our rejoicing and our praise. So now as we consider your word, overwhelm us again. Flood us with the joy and holy satisfaction that belong to us and you alone. Lord Jesus, my mouth is clumsy and our ears are dull. But your words are true. They are firm and sure. So do these things for us this morning through the work of your spirit and the preaching of your word, 
for the glory of your Father. Amen. Would you be seated? For years now, Kara's indulged one of my vices. I love stand-up comedians, and Kara does not. But she puts up with me, and occasionally she puts up with having one of these comedians on TV. And one of my favorites that she's actually come to enjoy as well writes his best material on the ridiculous nature of all things parental. One of his best bits is an unintentional commentary on Genesis 3. He starts off talking about his frustration with his daughter's complete inability to play hide-and-seek the right way. She's four, and she's horrible at the game. She stinks. She tells him where to hide. And so she walks up to him, hide in the closet, Papa. Okay, whatever. She walks him over, sticks him in a closet, pushes the door to, walks back over four whole feet, counts to seven with her eyes open, walks back over, opens the door, and she's all snot. I found you. Oh, great. How on earth did you figure out where you told me to hide? That's perfect. That's Genesis 3. The creator of the world and everything in it, a God who speaks things into existence at will, a God who knows all things perfectly without investigation, walks into the garden, and Adam has leaves. You sure this is going to work, Adam? Don't worry about it, Eve. Everything's covered. I got foliage. And if things get a little dicey, I'm going to stand really still by one of these trees. And maybe he won't notice us. And that's the most asinine plan I've ever heard. I mean, in all honesty, I can't believe that we read it so often with straight faces, like Adam's plan was a good one. You even see it in children's Bibles where they have that giant foot that's supposed to be the Lord walking through the garden. And Adam and Eve kind of looking off in the distance like if they don't make eye contact, God won't notice them and he'll just move on. That's stupid. But that's our stupidity. More and more I'm convinced that we think our sin is really only hideous if other people can see it. If it makes its way to the outside, then it's putrid and revolting. But if it's secret and hidden, then it's manageable and it's not all that bad. As if the harsh way we talk to our wives is only damaging if someone from our home group hears us. Or maybe our arrogance is only corrosive if other people can see through our false humility. We think this way about our sin because we really want to believe that fig leaves are effective camouflage for broken souls. Adam and Eve thought they were. And everyone since has wanted to believe that it still might work. Cain, Achan, David, they all thought it would. And so do we. And as silly as that is, there's another side to this coin. As ridiculous as all of that hiding is, 
Adam and Eve cover themselves and hide. And in some sense, it's appropriate. Their sin is so awful and shameful, it's right that they should want to hide. It's right that they should want what is ugly to be covered. Their sin needs a covering. Our sin is foul enough to need hiding. And the problem is, our hiding never does anything for our sin. Hiding your sin won't kill it. In fact, privacy is what my sin craves. And a steady diet of hiding your sin and sweeping it under the carpet will grow it faster than seemingly anything else I know. And that's what makes Jesus remarkable. That's what makes Jesus so magnificent. When we come to Luke's gospel, after generations and millennia of people hiding, we find Jesus, a Savior who does not hide in the shadows, who does not cover himself with leaves. His birth may have been humble, but it wasn't hidden. It wasn't a secret. It had been promised forever. It was promised again to Mary. It was announced beforehand, and then angels sang of it. Shepherds were gathered and sent. When we come to Luke's gospel, we find Jesus, the new Adam, not in the leaves, but out in the open. In the pairing of our two texts this morning, your ears should perk up a little bit when we hear that he's getting ready to be presented to the Lord in the temple. Now, this should have been happening with every firstborn son since the law was given. But there's something more here. Jesus isn't just being presented to the Lord. Here the Father is making his good news known. The Father brings his good news out in the open, and he makes it known to his people. He shows it to Simeon. Later in the passage, we read of how he shows it to Anna the prophetess. And to all the people who are waiting for this Messiah that had been promised, they wait, and the Lord doesn't whisper it for those that are close. The Lord brings it out in the open and makes it public. Simeon's description lets us know that Jesus is not to be some well-kept secret reserved for those who are in the know or somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. He starts in verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation, the one that you prepared out in the open, on display in the presence of all the nations, unhidden, published to be known by all, a light for revelation and understanding to the Gentiles, the magnificence and glory of your people Israel. Jesus can and should be presented to the Lord. And he can and should be presented to the entire world because he has nothing to hide. He is the Son in whom the Father delights himself. And Jesus is the eternal Son in whom we should find our delight as well. This wasn't salvation to be whispered. God displayed him publicly for the whole world to see because he's beautiful. There's nothing that needs hiding in him. 
And so Jesus comes to be our public Savior, undoing all of our hiding, uncovering all of our hidden sin, and pulling us out of the shadows. So Jesus, our public Savior, comes and He opens our closets. He tears down our hiding places in the gospel, but there must be more than Him just leaving us there exposed. Jesus doesn't just open up the doors and leave us naked but he's given us something in its place. What does Jesus give us in place of our hiding? Did you see it in verse 35? Jesus, our public Savior, takes what is in our hearts and he publishes it. For some of you, this is what you've always wanted. For some of you, this is your worst fear, but your thoughts just got a book deal. He makes us public too. As our public Savior, Jesus makes us His public people. If He was a light to the nations to display His magnificence as the glory of Israel, then He does the same thing with us. He does it in us by extension of Himself in the church. He saves us out of our hiding to be His people, to be His bride, part of His body, adopted as the children of His Father, And so by extension, we're made into His gospel lanterns. And we display His same light in the church. And just like Him, we display it in the presence of all the peoples. And we should stop for a minute here because we trip over this very often. One thing that we get right as Reformed Christians is the secret and mysterious movement of the Spirit. We know that the work of the Spirit is invisible to us that we can't predict it, and we can't conjure it, we can't manipulate it. And so it's right for us to discuss and appreciate this mysterious movement. We don't get to see His operation in giving us new hearts of faith and repentance and worship. The new heart is something we don't see on the outside, but only at first. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 that just the way you can't see the wind... You can't see the Spirit. You can't see where He comes from. You can't see where He's going. But even in John 3, He goes farther than that. He says you can hear the sound of Him. Just like the wind, you can hear the rustling. And so if we claim to be moved by and made alive by the wind of the Spirit, there should be evidence of His rustling in us. Just because the Spirit is mysterious and sovereign, it doesn't mean that we can't see anything of His effects. In fact, it's the opposite. The effects of grace that Jesus gives us by the Spirit are public. They are real, Spirit-born change in us as new creatures. And they can't help but be noticed if they're genuine. Because in us, Jesus is putting His grace and His work on display. He gives us a public faith. He gives us public fruit and sanctification. We grow in new affections that cannot be hidden, that have to be known. Our mouths are given new words. Our hands are given new motions. Our eyes now seek out and look for the beauty of Christ rather than the filth of our own sin. 
But that means the gifts that he gives us are public gifts. They're not yours privately. We tend to talk about the gifts of Christ as something that we receive on Christmas morning, open and take to our rooms and set on a shelf. But this means that what he gives us is not meant for us alone. The Lord means to give these things for the benefit of the church, but they don't just stop there. They shouldn't stop when you leave this room. And they're not only ours when we're in front of our home groups or our friends from other churches. That's the Pharisees' version of public. That's a show put on to convince ourselves and others that we actually have life, have the life of God in us when we don't. But Jesus, as our public Savior, actually gives us these things for His own pleasure and His provision in our marriages, in our parenting, when we're dating, in our friendships, and even in the way we deal with people that get under our skin. And the one that's especially convicting for many of us this time of year, he gives us these things in the ways that we live with our extended families at Thanksgiving and Christmas. About a year ago, Kara and I went to lunch at a restaurant near SMU's campus. We got our food and we sat down. And about halfway through our lunch, a group of freshman girls came in and sat down at the table two or three tables away from us. Now, they were friends in high school, and they'd gone off to different colleges. They were home for Christmas, and so they hadn't seen each other. They'd come to lunch to catch up, to tell each other what had been going on. And so one of them started telling a story fairly loudly about how she'd gone to college, how she'd pledged a sorority in the summer, and how she'd done some very irresponsible, very illegal things in the fall, and how she'd posted all the pictures of it online. She was kicked out of her sorority before Thanksgiving. She was suspended from school, and with righteous indignation and complete disgust, she summarized the entire story for everyone at the table and everyone in the room. I mean, seriously, it's like there's no such thing as privacy anymore. She wanted to hide her sin in public. It wasn't bad that she had done these things. It was only bad that someone had found the pictures that she published. And recently what I realized is that that's exactly how I think about my sin and my sanctification I should be able to manage the privacy settings. Because if I'm going to do the right thing, I want someone else to know about it. Especially if it's hard or sacrificial. If it costs me something, I need someone else to know because otherwise I won't get credit for it. I've been realizing more and more that I'm nicer and more attentive to my children when you're around. And I act more loving toward Kara when she's going to know how loving and sacrificial I am. I don't mean any of these things in a scandalous Jekyll and Hyde sense. Most of the things I've been noticing are laughably small. But it's what they show me about my own heart that's disturbing. I notice that I actually anticipate when Kara's going to need help with the kids 
And I imagine ways to make her day smoother and better. But I only act on these things if I don't have a good enough excuse not to. I only act on these things if she's actually going to see what difference it made. So what that really means for me is that I don't do these things out of a real love for her. I do these things as obligations, things that I would shirk if given the chance, and if she's not going to notice or comment, then why bother? And I do the same with all of you. I put a lot more time and energy into things like a sermon because you're going to see and hear it. And in all of these things, I've started to see how short I come of Jesus' public perfection and how often I actually create my own suit of fig leaves for a different purpose. I want to hide the graces that Jesus wants center stage and on display as His works in me. And you and I are used to seeing public displays of Christian virtue. Christians love to display virtue, but we see it most prominently when it's for the sake of going public. We see it shouted through bullhorns on street corners and worn on sandwich boards downtown. And as Bob Anderson put so well recently, we see it posted in pious Facebook updates. But we see it less in each other's lives. As odd as it is to say, you know that this is true. Real public discipleship from our real public Savior speaks loudest to us when it's gentle. It's the humble life lived in gospel friendships, in and outside of the church, publicly confessing faith, unhidden in its confession of sin, Unashamed as it asks for prayer and desperate and thankful for encouragement and forgiveness wherever it finds it. This kind of public discipleship rejoices out loud in repentance and sanctification seen in another. Now, some reduce the faith of the church to something that's private and imperceptible outside of us. It only happens in here. And others reduce it to behavior and ritual, to be done on the outside only. Only done to be seen. The good news is that Jesus refuses to be reduced. Jesus refuses to have His good news truncated. As our public Savior, He makes His public people changed by His grace. And His grace is unmistakable in its public effect. His grace is seen in us. Skeptics, in all of this discussion of, public, of a public Savior and public discipleship, here's the question for you. What do you work hardest to hide? And what benefit have you gotten from hiding so far? How far has this hiding taken you? Or to put it another way, if Jesus really is a public Savior, 
if he really is full of grace that's put out on display in the open, then what thoughts does he reveal in you? And what, if you belong to him, would he put in their place? Is there any of his grace that you see that needs to replace what you have on your own? Hiding in the bushes didn't take away Adam's sin. And all the ways that we hide ourselves under our carefully constructed public personas don't change who we are. But, Je- but Jesus didn't tell us to go out and be on our best behavior in public. The end of our passage, Luke says that he makes our hearts known. Regardless of our hiding or any public facades we might have, the good news here for us is that before he publishes them for all to see, Jesus is the one who gives us new hearts. The Son who is free out in the open because he is the Father's delight. He makes us delightful in himself. He gives us new hearts filled with his worship. And then he goes public with us. Jesus, our public Savior, makes us new. And then he makes us his public people. Happy Epiphany. Amen. Lord Jesus, you have done for us what none of us could do for ourselves. In your incarnation and in your incarnation alone, you have undone our ruin. You've brought life and peace to your people. And you didn't hoard it. You didn't hide it. Instead, you put it out on display. So now would you take us, would you grab us and take away our hiding and give us more of the fruit of your grace that can be seen, more of the new heart seen on the outside, made public. Take our thoughts and our words and our actions And use them to display the magnificence of your grace. Because we have nothing else worth displaying. Nothing else worth making public. Lord Jesus, would you do these things for us this week? Would you do these things in us this afternoon? And would you start doing them for us as you bring us to eat and drink at your table at the public feast of your grace for your people who are publicly redeemed. Amen.